Chapter 26 Spiritual PTSD and the Parable of the Molting Chickens Fear not thine enemies, for they are in mine hands, and I will do my pleasure with them. My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. Doctrine and Covenants 136, 30-31 In September 2014, the Enzyme published an article by President Thomas S. Monson entitled, Are We Prepared?, in which he shared the following story. In the vicinity where I once lived and served, the church operated a poultry project, staffed primarily by volunteers from the local wards. Most of the time, it was an efficiently operated project supplying to the bishop's storehouse thousands of fresh eggs and hundreds of pounds of dressed poultry. On a few occasions, however, being volunteer city farmers meant not only blisters on the hands, but also frustration of heart and mind. For instance, I shall ever remember the time we gathered the ironic priesthood young men to give the project a spring cleaning. Our enthusiastic and energetic throng assembled at the project and in a speedy fashion uprooted, gathered, and burned large quantities of weeds and debris. By the light of the glowing bonfires, we ate hot dogs and congratulated ourselves on a job well done. However, there was just one disastrous problem. The noise in the fire so disturbed the fragile population of 5,000 laying hens that most of them went into a sudden molt and ceased laying. Therefore, we tolerated a few weeds so that we might produce more eggs. Unquote. I didn't know what a chicken molt was, so I decided to research this concept and learned that while molting is actually a natural part of a chicken's life, it can also be brought on by unnatural factors. Molting occurs when a chicken becomes so stressed that they shed their feathers. As a result, they're unable to lay eggs because the energy required to do so is being spent on growing new feathers. And due to the energy and due to the lack of egg productivity, a natural aspect of their existence, they eventually experience behavioral changes, not to mention they look awful. Given this story was shared by a prophet of God, I believe we can consider his words to be a parable for life. In viewing it this way, you might say that we as members of the church represent the chickens, whereas the young men in President Monson's story are the leaders of the church. With this in mind, consider the following. Have you ever thought it strange that in more recent times the church leadership has stopped speaking heavily about the difficult things that are coming in the last days? Surely we are closer to the time of tribulations than we were 30 years ago. One would think a need to hear of these things would increase. With an actual decrease of warnings, some would believe our leaders are either not inspired, are out of touch with what's going on in the world, or that it's okay to just ignore past warnings as though they really hold no validity, given how advanced and civilized the world has become. On the contrary, I submit the reason for this deemed lack of continued reporting of doomsday's prophecies is something entirely different. We have been counseled for decades to be prepared. We have been well taught about what is, in fact, coming. The reason, at least in part, why the leaders don't extensively focus on the subject anymore is because they are trying so hard to keep us focused on moving forward, moving closer to Christ, deepening personal testimony and learning how to rely on individual revelation. 
They don't want to incite fear because that is of the adversary. And as we've been counseled in the scriptures, we would be unwise stewards if we were waiting to be told everything we should be doing to prepare for what is to come. Each of us has our own responsibility to gain our own witness of what has already been taught by going to the Lord and asking him what he would have us do. The Lord has warned us that when his people fail to heed the warnings given to them by the prophets or they give in to the enemies who tempt them against that which they have been counseled, causing pride to creep in among them, they ask the prophets to lessen their words. The response will then be that he will cause a famine of his word, as proven with the history in Amos 2, 11 and 12. Verse 11, And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? Verse 12, But he gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. This pattern is also supplemented in Doctrine and Covenants 43, 23, and 25. Verse 23, And again the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven, saying, Hearken, O ye nations of the earth, and hear the words of that God who made you. Verse 25, How oft have I called you a called you by the mouth of my servants and by the ministering of angels and by mine own voice and by the voice of thunderings and by the voice of lightnings and by the voice of tempests and by the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind and by the great sound of a trump and by the voice of judgment by the voice of mercy all the day long and by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. Amos 3, 6 through 7, and 8, 11, and 12 tell us how the Lord responds to such defiance. Verse 6, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people be not afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. Verse 11, of chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor for, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Verse 12. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. The Joseph Smith translation of Amos 3.7 clarified it to read, Surely the Lord God will do nothing until he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophet, prophets. So what can this new translation teach us? The prophets and apostles have stopped warning us in these recent years. And it seems that after years of being counseled, we are now being left to see who has eyes to see and ears to hear because they are the only ones to whom the mysteries of the universe are being revealed. This is why our prophets and apostles have become adamant of late that we strive to receive our own personal revelation on these matters and why President Russell M. Nelson taught in a recent general conference address, quote, in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting and constant influence of the Holy Ghost, unquote. With the general membership of the church blithely casting aside the words of the prophets and ultimately the Lord, that have already been uttered in warning, they are now seeking to depend on having only the very basics of the gospel save them, which they fail to realize is actually going to affect their final exaltation. 
The church is now experiencing an exponential growth of new members. As the members in general are not promoting the learning of the deeper doctrines, if our church leaders were to be blunt about what is coming, it's very likely the membership would go into their own kind of molt. Many could become so overwhelmed that they would get discouraged and give up altogether. Those members who are still struggling to learn to recognize the voice of the Lord could become distracted and not able to hear any personal counsel he has for them. Just as with the chickens in President Monson's story, fear would take hold. These members would stop being productive altogether and we would see the premature mass exodus that we already know is supposed to happen. We already know, based on prophecy about the last days, the chickens, church members, will inevitably be greatly disturbed even more than we are today with all that is going on in the world. The Lord is finalizing his preparations to return to the earth. In the parable of the ten virgins, we know that all the virgins represent members of the church, yet half of them were not prepared when the bridegroom came. It's very difficult for me to imagine. This is actually prophesying that half of the church Half of the members of the church will not be ready when the Savior returns. What I find perhaps even more difficult to understand is what will happen to those who are unprepared. In referencing the parable of the separation of the wheat and the tares, we know that these two plants actually grow together. And just as in our gardens today, they must eventually be separated. When witnessing what is happening to the church nowadays, it's clear that this separation has already begun, and soon the wheat will be gathered completely out from the tares, and the tares will be burned. And just like in the chicken story, the commotion of the burning of the weeds, or the tares, is and will continue to send the unprepared members of the church into a molt. It is this aspect of the story I want to primarily focus on. First of all, the destruction that is coming has been prophesied to be worse than anything that we have previously experienced. I mention this to help the reader understand the conditions in which we will soon be living. Many believe such conditions exist now, but according to prophecy, they will in fact worsen as we get closer to the Savior's final return. Imagine, if you will, the following. The wheat has been gathered. We have been called out into camps. Up until this time, we have surely seen some difficult things, but for the most part, we have been preserved. Others start coming into camps. They have come from great distances and have witnessed much death, disease, and destruction. They are traumatized beyond anything we can imagine. Incidents of mental illness will be staggering. Many, as a result of all the catastrophic events, as well as the subsequent demands placed upon the saints, will be suffering from a severe level of stress we commonly refer to as PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. And like the chickens in the story, they will molt and be unable to function. Even though this will be a different kind of scenario, never before experienced, Trauma resulting from overly intense experiences, as well as the resulting physiological, physiologically disabling impact of PTSD, is nothing new. Following the Vietnam War, it has been estimated that 31% of the soldiers that served there were later diagnosed with PTSD. In 2009, the National Institutes of Health, Health reported the following, <clears throat> quote, Post-traumatic stress disorder may develop after a terrifying ordeal involving physical harm or the threat of physical harm. You don't have to be physically hurt to get PTSD. You can get it after you see others, a friend, a family member, even a stranger harmed or threatened. 
people with PTSD may become emotionally numb, especially in relation to people with whom they used to be close. They may lose interest in things they used to enjoy. They may startle easily or be irritable, become aggressive, and may have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. They avoid situations that remind them of the original incident and often find anniversaries of the incident to be very difficult. PTSD symptoms seem to be worse if they were triggered deliberately by another person, as in a mugging or rape. Most PTSD sufferers repeatedly relive the trauma in their thoughts during the day and in nightmares when they sleep. These are called flashbacks. Flashbacks may consist of images, sounds, smells, or feelings. They are often triggered by ordinary occurrences, such as a door slamming, a car backfiring, or being in a place that looks like where the trauma took place. A person having a flashback is likely to feel the emotions and physical feelings that occurred when the incident happened, despite no longer being in danger, unquote. Years ago, I had a neighbor who was a Vietnam veteran and suffered from PTSD as a result of his experiences in the war. I remember vividly how we had to be very careful around him, especially during the 4th of July celebratory activities. The fireworks were actually a trigger for him. He would react as though he was reliving the experience of being engaged in enemy fire. At times, it was like he was in a trance, and then he would panic, or even shout and cry out. It was frightening because we didn't know if, while in that state, he would be able to distinguish reality from his memories, or if he would act accordingly. As awful as the Vietnam War was, it will be nothing compared to what is coming in the final days. Disease, destruction, and death from natural causes will be terrible enough, yet this is not the whole of it. Of all the abominations written in scripture, cannibalism, child sacrifice, rape, and murder for pleasure, the future society will be replete with far greater atrocities. Those who have seen these in vision have begged to have the visions closed before because of the savage because of the savagery they contain can you even begin to imagine the horror experienced by those who survive such monstrosities one visionary man described a scene he has seen as some people were brought into camps he wrote quote, they were curled up in the fetal position they couldn't even move unquote. there are some today who joke about the idea of a zombie apocalypse coming i tell you this is no joking matter People will be shell-shocked. They will be thrown into the throngs of mental illness. They will appear to us as zombies lost in a proverbial twilight zone. One might think that this is a matter of overemphasizing man's inability to cope, but on the contrary, the mind is very powerful, and in a protective manner, it works to compensate for the trauma we go through. In an effort to maintain stasis and survival, not all efforts are positive or healthy. The mind will do whatever is necessary to keep us alive, even if it means making us sick. Already we know there is a direct link between trauma and abuse and psychosomatic symptoms, including such health issues as irritable bowel syndrome, seizures, multiple personality disorder, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic pain and depression, just to name a few. Sadly, those suffering from these diagnoses, when unable to find relief or healing, often choose unhealthy ways of coping, such as drugs or alcohol, promiscuity, eating disorders, and a number of other dangerously destructive behaviors. While the mind is quite powerful and effective when it comes to maintaining our sanity and keeping us alive, it may not always choose the healthiest of ways to do this.
Coping is usually just a code word for avoiding and tuning out or molting. In a level of severity that completely disables an individual is not all that uncommon when it comes to extreme traumatic experiences. So how do we help those who will molt into a state of such disability? What hope or healing can we offer to those of our brothers and sisters as they arrive in the camps and other places of safety? Surely, as we know, all healing and comfort is made possible by the atonement. This can only come from Jesus Christ. Once he has returned to the earth, those who suffer can be healed at his will. Yet, while that time is coming soon, there are many who need help now. As such, there are methods already in existence that can begin to peel away the layers of pain and heartache and alleviate the trauma, thereby reducing the disability, dis- disabling after effects. When you really think about it, it is no coincidence that in addition to the long-standing traditional medicines, there has been such an awakening to natural and holistic forms of healing in recent years. In fact, it could be said that this awakening is actually a remembrance of natural healing that existed long before the modern methods. I do believe that this work, while seemingly just beginning to make an impact, will also have a great role leading up to the millennial times. There are many people that have been given the gift to heal as well as the gift to be healed. These gifts may not be noticed now, but rather seem to lie dormant. Future circumstances will awaken these gifts, and we will experience many mighty miracles of healing. I have heard many people say that the priesthood power will be used to heal those to harsh, so harshly affected. Surely we will see miracles and blessings from this power. However, as people have witnessed, it is not always the Lord's will that his children be immediately healed from priesthood blessings. With this, as with all the healing options available, the Lord's will for each of us in how we heal and if we do is something that needs to be considered and understood if we are to find peace, either in healing or not being healed yet. No matter which of these are to apply to us, we need to have faith that the Lord knows what is best for us. To learn what his will is for us, we need to learn to recognize our Lord's voice to follow it implicitly, to look to him for every need, and rely on him completely. It takes faith to initiate this, and if we are willing to pay the price, he will bless us with every avenue to heal ourselves, as well as our loved ones. He will not rob us of of the experience if it will help us grow into the gods we are destined to become. In the 1992 General Conference, Elder Richard G. Scott gave a fantastic talk about healing. In part, he said, quote, Healing best begins with your sincere prayer, asking your Father in Heaven for help. That use of your agency allows divine intervention. When you permit it, the love of the Savior will soften your heart and break the cycle of abuse that can transform a victim into an aggressor. Adversity, even when caused willfully by others, unrestrained appetite can be a source of growth when viewed from the perspective of eternal principle, unquote. Elder Scott hits on three vital aspects of healing. First is that the person must have faith to be healed. Faith leads to action and proper use of agency, which is the second aspect. The third is being accountable for our role in the process. There is so much learning and growth that occurs as one takes part in and learns about the healing process. First of all, before any healing is to take place, it is important that each person be able to ask the question of, what am I to learn from this trial or illness? 
While some illnesses are simply the result of environment and, and unfortunate circumstances, many of God's children are allowed to experience them because the Lord is trying to get their attention and teach them something. This is not always the case, but when it is, instant healing without perspective is futile at best and leaves the experience in vain. As Paul taught, quote, God having provided some better things for them through their sufferings, for without sufferings they could not be made perfect, unquote. That's Joseph Smith translation, Hebrews 11.40. There can be great purpose in suffering, although this is not always the intended case. Quote, I do not believe that sheer suffering teaches. If suffering alone taught, all the world would be wise, since everyone suffers. To suffering must be added mourning, understanding, patience, love, openness, and the willingness to remain vulnerable, unquote. That's from Anne Morrow Lindbergh in The Gift of the Sea. When seeking healing, first determine if there is a divine purpose in your suffering. Ergo, lessons that need to be learned. Then seek the Lord's guidance in learning them. The other aspect of healing that needs to be considered is the source behind the process chosen. We in the church know that everything was spiritual before it was temporal, so it stands to reason that all processes here on earth were in existence in some form or another in the primordial world. However, this does not guarantee efficacy from every one of them, as the conditions for recreating such here in mortality are very different than that of our premortal realm. As such, I believe there is a direct correlation between the levels of inspiration used in developing and applying various modalities with the resulting healing made possible by them. It would be wise for practitioners of these healing processes, as well as their clients, to carefully evaluate whether the use of any modality draws one closer to Jesus Christ, the true source of all healing, or to man, as in relying upon the arm of the flesh. There are many on earth who, as a result of their brilliant minds have discovered and developed very advanced and effective healing processes, but even the greatest minds cannot compete with the ultimate healer and creator of our minds, bodies, and spirits. As a result, if one has not sought spiritual direction in developing such processes, their modalities may effectively manage symptoms, but still fall short from the actual healing that can only come through the Savior, as in a process completely inspired by him. The same inspiration is necessary when determining which healing process the Lord has determined is most beneficial for us personally. Just as the prophet Joseph Smith prayed earnestly to know which church to join, I believe it is important to pray to know which modalities the Lord would have us use. He knows exactly what we need and has prepared a way for us to receive such. It may be easy to get caught up in what others are doing, the latest and greatest with their exciting promises of complete healing. And no doubt, Satan will always attempt to deceive us in this effort because the last thing he wants is for us to be whole in any way. So when seeking inspiration and guidance in what process God prefers for us, it's critical to understand the difference between the peace that surpasses all understanding, um, possibly from such an inspired direction, and the temporary peace that may come from bits of healing, limited relief, validation, and glimmers of hope. Remember, all that glitters is not always gold. As I noted above, all healing ultimately comes from the atonement of Jesus Christ. While the following listed modalities have the best of intentions and are capable of yielding certain levels of healing, we must always remember the principles of healing and the criteria for such. 
The principles of healing written by Regina Milan have been received by pure inspiration. This information is being prepared for release in the near future according to the Lord's timing. For now, here is a glimpse. 1. It must be God's will that healing takes place. 2. There are lessons to be learned, experiences to be had, and if we miss the lesson, He will likely not allow us to be healed until we do learn. 3. The process must be inspired in both creation and application. 4. Each of us must be accountable in how we use our agency and rely upon our faith as we move forward. There have been times when an uninspired practitioner has unknowingly allowed, or sadly even knowingly caused, re-traumatization, believing that I believe this is necessary in order to heal. I personally do not believe our Father ever intended us to be re-traumatized by anything we've gone through. So any process that deliberately makes you focus on such, in my opinion, is not only not healing, but dangerous, as it can create additional issues. That is why it is so important to remember that God knows exactly what we need to be healed, and it is vital that we stay connected with the Spirit during the entire process. True healing involves restoring the connection we have with God and relying on His direction through the process. It is a restoration of one's divine identity and purpose that opens us up to the general, to the greatest healing and edification possible. When all four criteria are met, there is literally nothing that cannot be healed. A remarkable example of this occurred in 1838 following the tragic massacre at Hans Mill. A young boy, Alma Smith, had his hip blown away by gunfire. His mother, Amanda, asked her son if he believed God could make his hip new or make him a new hip. They both had the faith the Lord could do this. Amanda prayed to know what to do and was inspired to make a poultice from ash, lye, and elm root. She applied this to the remaining flesh and followed explicitly the instructions given to her by the Spirit to care for the wound. Years later, doctors were in awe at the healing that had taken place and inquired of her how, as how she performed such a surgery. She replied that it was Jesus Christ himself who healed her son. See how these principles apply? She had faith and determined it was indeed the Lord's will to heal her son. She exercised her faith and agency, and she followed the instructions exactly. The entire process came from the Lord, and she stayed connected to him throughout its entirety. As I mentioned, there are a number of modalities, healing processes, that are capable of offering some relief. Many of them are based on a similar understanding that often much of what we experience is really psychosomatic in that the mind converts the negative things we experience or come to believe in life into actual physical symptoms that plague us. It is believed that by uncovering this negative mind-body association and releasing it, the physical symptoms associated with such are also released. Some of the more well-known or popular processes that focus on this type of approach include the following. The emotion code slash body code. Based on the idea that everything is energy, including our emotions, when we have negative emotions, they can get stuck in various areas of our bodies, which causes various body parts to take on the frequency or vibration of the negative emotion and result in pain or disease. Kinesiology or muscle testing is used to identify the negative emotions in order to release them. EFT, the Emotional Freedom Technique, or Faster EFT, involves tapping on certain biomeridians in the body, also used in acupuncture. Also, well, also used in acupuncture while using positive affirmations to reprogram the mind to let go of anything negatively affecting the individual. Reiki involves tuning into 
an unlimited supply of universal life force energy and to stimulate the integration of body, mind, and spirit to release negativity and enhance the body's natural healing abilities. EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, a psychotherapy utilizing the REM, or rapid eye movement phenomenon, to facilitate the the accessing and processing of traumatic memories and other adverse life experiences, to bring these to light so they can be mentally and emotionally processed and released. Quantum touch, a method of natural healing that works with what they refer to as life force energy. NLP, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, a process that focuses on the fundamental dynamics between mind, neuro, and language, linguistic, and how their interplay affects our body and behavior, the mental programming. Theta state healing, a technique that changes the brain wave cycle through meditation and prayer, using intuition to rely on the creator of all to provide spontaneous physical and mental healing. Spirit code, this views the energy in this energy work in a more unique way, in that there are various offices in Satan's employ that carry particular frequencies which resonate with our frequencies when dealing with life experiences, such as fear, anger, depression, etc., In this sense, the negative energy or entity is removed. A quick Google search will reveal many, many more alternative or complementary healing modalities. Some refer to these types of processes as energy work. This is based on the idea that, as Einstein proved, that everything in the universe is made up of energy, including our thoughts. Those creating energy type healing processes do so based on the understanding that negative energy is what is really causing all of our issues and that it can be moved, modified, cleared, etc., resulting in an alleviation or even elimination of our symptoms. The last process noted above actually focuses on energy while also noting to address the actual individual spirit in the process, believing they are one and the same. Pertaining to the importance is the alternative approach to healing. That in addition to traditional medicine, we read in the ninth article of faith, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal. And we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Although we live in the fullness of times and enjoy the fullness of the gospel, the restoration of all things is not yet complete. There are things yet to be expanded and expounded upon. There are more comprehensive and powerful methods of healing, which we are presently unaware These will be revealed in the Lord's due time, some of which are being specifically reserved for the millennial era. Another concept introduced and made popular by some of the latest healing modalities is generational application. Healing our ancestors and posterity, or what we in the church would refer to as proxy work. Many processes note the importance and impact of generational transmission when it comes to energies and genetics. I believe the particulars on this have yet to truly be revealed, but the idea of one generation helping another heal is not new in the gospel. Consider the following counsel about how our choices for good or for bad impact our posterity. Quote, And I, the Lord, would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. Um, now contrast this verse with that of section 124, 52. And I will answer judgment, wrath, and indignation, wailing and anguish and gnashing of teeth upon their heads unto the third and fourth generation, so long as they repent not and hate me, saith the Lord your God. 
With regards to the genetic transference from one generation to another, we have science that backs this up. In 2013 at Emory University in Georgia, a study was conducted that involved mice being subjected to a smell of cherry blossom, followed by an electric shock. As a result, the mice became conditioned to fear the scent of the cherry blossom and would shudder as soon as it was introduced before the shock occurred. What is perhaps even more interesting and pertinent to the concept of generational transmission is that they then bred these mice and found that for two generations, while never having experienced the electric shock treatment, their offspring exhibited the exact same behavior when introduced to the cherry blossom smell. Many have experienced great traumas in their lives, and healing from these is definitely important, especially knowing it is possible to pass on the debilitating effects of such to our children and further generations. In fact, it may very well be part of our mortal journey to be the one who breaks the cycle of this transmission, making our healing even more crucial. Carl Fred Broderick, a noted LDS author and psychologist, shared the following about this concept. Quote, God actively intervenes in some destructive lineages, assigning a valiant spirit to break the chain of destructiveness in such families. Although these children may suffer innocently as victims of violence, neglect, and exploitation, through the grace of God, some find the strength to metabolize the poison within themselves, refusing to pass it on to future generations. Before them were generations of destructive pain. After them, the line flows clear and pure. Their children and children's children will call them blessed. In suffering innocently, that others might not suffer. Such persons in some degree become as saviors on Mount Zion by helping to bring salvation to a lineage. Unquote. We are taught that the great objective of the millennium will be temple ordinances for our deceased ancestors. This will be a tremendous work. One thing to bear in mind is that the individuals for whom we perform these ordinances must also accept the work being done for them in order for them to be valid. They too must come to the knowledge of who they are who the Lord is, and accept his healing atonement on their behalf. Remember Doctrine and Covenants 128.18 about both ancestors and posterity helping to make the other perfect? Proxy work is an eternal principle. In the temple, we serve as a proxy for our deceased ancestors. Then when they are ready, they may accept the work done for them. Healing by proxy for our kindred dead is a similar process and in some modalities an accepted practice. However, in any act of proxy work, we must not only consider but respect the concept of agency, both ours and of those for whom we serve as proxy. We must also make sure we are worthy and actually chosen as an appointed proxy for another. Most don't consider this, especially given how easy it is to perform ordinances for our kindred dead. Other than a temple recommend, there is no other specific requirements. The truth is, when it comes to serving as a proxy, there is a powerful experience possible when one is fulfilling a divinely willed proxy assignment. For this type of experience, we must be prayerful when choosing to do work for spirits to know for certain one is accepted of the Lord to act as proxy for the other. This is not only true, but essential when serving as a proxy in the healing process. There should be the assurance from God of what exactly needs to be resolved for them or even between us and them. Just like we would not want to deprive the living of the rich experiences and learning opportunities life has to offer through the use of our own agency, we do not want to interfere with the Lord's plan for learning and healing of those departed, which does account for their uses of agency. Perhaps one of the most key and overlooked aspects of proxy work is the accountability factor that Elder Scott spoke of in his talk. In the beginning of this chapter, I noted that in the healing process, there must be accountability in both learning whatever lessons are needed for healing to take place and exercising 
one's faith in the process. That same is true for proxy work. While we can serve as a proxy in many ways while here in mortality, there are some limitations when it comes to healing because we as the proxy cannot be held accountable for the learning and faith exercising process of those on whose behalf we work. I believe in these cases there are additional efforts being made beyond the veil to assist such individuals in their own healing and allowing them to be accountable. This is just another example of the principle of self-reliance, albeit a uniquely applied version. If you've noticed, although there is not a new concept recently, the church has been increasing their efforts in the teaching of this principle of self-reliance. I believe this effort is not simply to help each individual be able to stand alone strongly, but also to help others. A friend of mine once shared her belief on the idea of stewardships. She said, quote, once the mountain has been climbed, the view can be admired. But to truly overcome the mountain, one must not stand at the top alone, but amid those who were able to follow in their footsteps, unquote. Just as in the sacred assignment of serving as a proxy for our loved ones, we also have stewardships that we agreed to carry out during our mortal journeys. However, one will find it difficult indeed, perhaps even impossible, to help another overcome a mountain when they themselves are too weak to climb. Referring again to the parable of the ten virgins, it is not possible for those with insufficient levels of oil to fill the lamps of others. This also applies to healing. It seems highly probable that some will be called to roles of healing during these tumultuous times, most likely through divine design, and to the fulfilling of primordial to the fulfilling of primordially assigned stewardship. However, we will not be effective healers if we ourselves have not healed, as well as done the work necessary to prepare our minds, hearts, and bodies to be ready when the Savior returns. We must be prepared to lay our own e- a- We must be prepared to lay our own eggs when the rest of the chickens begin to molt. Also, I submit that the greatest healing tool available to us that will provide the best preparation is that of prayer and personal revelation. If there was ever a time more important for developing a personal relationship with the ultimate healer, our Savior Jesus Christ, it is now. Without this, not only will we molt, but we will not survive the end of days as they've been prophesied. Practice now so that when things become even more difficult, our Lord will not be a stranger to you. And you will know what his voice sounds like. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. Doctrine and Covenants 4557. Let's admit it. The last thing we'll need to add to our burdens and trials in the last days, the fear of being deceived in the middle of a crisis. We have a small window of time to finish getting ourselves ready. At the end of President Monson's story, he noted this crucial reminder, quote, when the time for decision arrives, the time for preparation is past, unquote. We need to be ready so that when the times for our decisions present themselves, we are prepared to act. The chickens in the story were caught off guard. Unlike us, they were not warned of any impeding, impending trauma, but we have been many times. And with proper care and planning, we can be healed, made whole, edified, empowered, and ready to minister to any of our brothers and sisters, especially those who are molting.